Welcome to the latest episode of Your Wealth with Gemma Dale, a podcast series designed to help you create, grow and protect your wealth. Hi and welcome to this episode of Your Wealth. I'm Gemma Dale, NABTRADE's Director of SMSF and Investor Behaviour. One of the hottest topics in investment management is ESG, and I'm sure you've heard the acronym before, but you might be getting it wrong. I certainly have gotten it wrong in the past. It's environmental, social, and governance issues, and how to manage for them. There aren't many subjects, actually, that are quite so contentious in this area when you consider how to build a portfolio that aligns to people's values. But one of the joys of being a self-directed investor is that you can do this for yourself and it's much easier doing it for yourself than it is as the uh, portfolio manager of a super fund, for example, who has to manage for hundreds of thousands of members. Today, I'm speaking with Gillian Gordon, the head of ESG and alternative investments at JB Weir, who is responsible for creating the ESG framework for JB Weir's portfolio of high net worth clients. Gillian, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks very much, Gemma. I'm really pleased to be here. So Gillian, can you outline the key components of ESG for us? And when I said it's easy to get it wrong, I initially thought it was ethical, social and governance. So it's it's easier to explain it when you break it down, I imagine. Break it down why these topics are relevant for investors. Yeah, for sure. And I think it's a great place to start because... When I think about ESG, and you're absolutely right, that most people, when they think about um, responsible investing, they go immediately to ESG, which is environmental, social and governance, as, as you said. But I always like to take a step back from that and think about the bigger picture. And that bigger picture is really responsible investing as a whole concept. And ESG is only one component of responsible investing. It's the most popular component, I would say, in Australia, but definitely only one of the components. And I think it's more about clients wanting to invest to do well and do good. And that really goes beyond um, just ESG. But back to your question about what is ESG, that's environmental, social and governance. And that's about looking at risks and opportunities from those lenses, so from that E, S and G lens. And that's um, across both funds and companies. So when we're looking at investing, um, for example, at JB Weir, We have ESG characteristics integrated as standard practice within our due diligence frameworks. So when we're looking to select investments, whether that be a share, whether that be a bond, whether that be a fund on behalf of our clients, we would be looking at these risks and opportunities. And why that is so important is because we're looking for sustainable businesses that have long-term and sustainable cash flows. And so looking at the risks of a company or a fund it's important to look at all risks and some of those risks most certainly are ESG. They can also be opportunities too. So for example, you could be negatively rated from an ESG perspective, or you could actually be positively rated from an ESG perspective. So it's absolutely critical that when you're thinking about what to invest in, that is one of the risks and opportunities that you should be looking at an investment through. So you deal with direct clients within your business. Do you find that ESG issues are important to your clients? I'm always fascinated by how important these issues are to some people and others. And I do meet a lot of clients at different points uh, in my work. Some people it's absolutely essential. Others think it's a fad or just aren't interested. I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think there is a wide variety of perspectives on responsible investing and ESG in general. 
uh, as you said, um, I have met clients that um, have no interest in this particular area and some that are completely committed um, to only investing in a responsible manner. So you have a pretty broad spectrum um, in our advice business, and I would say in Australia in general, I think that would be fair to say. Um, if I look at what research shows, and, um, you know, we both have um, experience with clients that, and we've seen both sides, but research shows, for example, from the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, which is the big industry body in Australia, their research shows that 86% of Australians believe it is important for their financial advisor to ask them about their interests and values in relation to their investments, which is absolutely about um, a, a discussion on responsible investing. And the other big report, and these are both um, online for free for any listeners who are, who are keen and interested to know more, but there's another report, which is by Global Sustainable Investment Alliance, it's called the GSIA report, if you Google that. And it also shows that Australian investors, um, in terms of the way that they invest responsibly, are most heavily focused on two key areas of responsible investing. Number one is ESG, which is what we're talking about. And also number two is on negative screening or exclusion. So that's, for example, saying things like, I don't want any exposure to, for example, tobacco in my investment portfolio. And that would be an example of a negative screen. So I think the data shows that this is a trend. It is absolutely getting bigger. Um, for example, the RIAA report obviously shows that uh, many Australians are very interested in having this conversation. But I think whether or not a, a client wants to make an actual action or decision based on that, I think is another story. But for example, the way that we approach it at JB Weir is that we've launched a responsible investment policy and framework, and that's really aimed at interested clients. And I really emphasize the word interested clients because it's not necessarily every client, but it is a framework to help those interested clients to invest responsibly. And we really look at kind of four key areas of that, and that is around identification of ESG risks and opportunities. And so that's what we've been talking about today. Other areas of our framework include influence, which is around advocacy, stewardship and engagement of client capital. So the way that we positively push for change in fund managers and companies aimed at generating better returns for our clients. We also have impact investing, which is obviously a very popular topic in itself, and that's about positive social or environmental outcomes that are measured, monitored and reported on. And the fourth is really around individualizing client portfolios. And that's, again, about positive or negative screens. So that's, for example, a client might say, I want greater exposure to something that's very meaningful for them. That might be something like renewable energy, as an example, or I want to negatively screen or exclude certain exposures. So that might be something like, I don't want any tobacco in my portfolio, I don't want any coal in my portfolio. But I would say that um, when I think about our client base at JB Weir, there is an incredibly wide and diverse range of thoughts, values, ethics, principles within our client base. And so it's really our job to make sure that each client portfolio reflects that individual client's view of the world. And as you say, some clients are very interested in this space and others are not. And I think that's okay too. I love the way you've broken that down. Okay. Question a little bit without notice. Do you think that this is something of an educational issue when people, particularly if they're coming to get advice for the first time, they're looking at investing and wealth creation for the first time? 
they've probably got no concept uh, of ESG being a critical issue for them. But if you ask them explicitly, are you okay with investing in cluster munitions, for example? Sure. Do you find people go, oh, my God, I definitely don't want that but would never have brought it (laughs) up independently? I think it's a great question. Um, And that's one of the things that we're helping a lot of clients to understand at the moment is, you know, uh, for example, myself, I'm sure yourself, we all have had investments potentially for many years. That's certainly true in our client base. And a lot of clients are asking, okay, well, what does my portfolio look like today from a responsible investment perspective? You know, what exposures do I have and how do I feel about them? Um, So I think the first stage is really to understand what it is that you have exposure to through your shares, through your bonds, through the funds that you might own. What does that look like? And are you comfortable with that? And if you're not, for whatever reason, what steps can we help you to take to change or shift your portfolio to align to your value set more closely? Now, some clients, when they have that insight, might say, actually, I'm quite comfortable with the exposures I have. Um, And others, it's quite... um, an insight, quite a wake-up call for them to say, well, I just had no idea I had those kind of exposures. Now that you pointed it out to me, actually, I want to do things differently. And how we do things differently is a whole other conversation. But one way is to divest, which is obviously to remove exposures that you may want um, not to have in your portfolio. And I would say divestment is one way, but I would also say that um, ownership of a fund or a share, particularly shares, I would say, because you have voting rights, is a way of advocating for change because you can actually vote. So divestment is one way. Another way is obviously through advocacy um, and making your voice heard through your proxy voting. I think, yeah, we're talking about awareness and the fact that people come to you and go, tell me what's in there in the first place is fascinating uh, and not terribly surprising. We're finding a lot of investors start with ETFs, for example. It's a great simple decision to get started with investing, but you may find later on you haven't thought deeply about what's inside those ETFs, for example, and then you have a hell of a lot of questions to answer. I find that the Russian invasion of Ukraine has been something of a catalyzing experience for a lot of people. Uh, in that it's just one of those issues that doesn't really have two sides in the Western world. And from an investment perspective, people are starting to think really seriously about it. There was one advisory firm in Australia uh, which sent a note to clients immediately after the invasion saying they thought there was good value in some Russian assets for those who could stomach the risk and there was just widespread condemnation. No one wanted to make money out of Russian assets anymore. Are you seeing clients kind of focus or latch on to specific issues and go, God, this thing has happened. I hadn't ever contemplated Russian assets in my portfolio that might be linked to an invasion of a democratic country, that kind of stuff. Or do you think that is more a standalone incident? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, I suppose I'll start with that the Ukraine um, situation is obviously an enormously terrible humanitarian crisis. Um, And so I'm always quick to point that out before I talk about the financial impacts. And I think we all know that that is the case. Um, I think with the firm that you mentioned, obviously that was very damaging um, for them. And I think um, in hindsight, I'm sure they would do things differently had they had their time again. But in terms of the way that we think about that, that's absolutely something that's top of mind for our client base is what exposures, if any, do I have to Russian um, exposure within my portfolio? So the first thing we did as a firm was we reached out pretty proactively to all of our um, fund managers on our high conviction list and we had long conversations with them about what 
were there exposures to Russia within their funds? Um, and we've written a report on that for clients around um, making sure they have that clear transparency of any exposures. Um, for the record, that was very limited um, exposure to Russia, as, as you'd expect. Um, a big part of that is not only what is the current exposure to Russia, but also what are the fund managers' stance on Russia and how do they think about it in terms of their investment decisions. And that's also really important. And that's about us being proactively engaged with the manager. That's about advocacy on behalf of our clients, making sure that our fund managers understand that this is top of mind for our clients and that we need this transparency and we need regular communication about it. So that is something that our clients understand today. I don't think it's a standalone incident. Um, and I think uh, clients are increasingly wanting better transparency. And importantly, I think their voice heard with fund managers um, and even with um, companies, I would say that's the case too. It's not just um, from a fund manager perspective, but obviously there's much greater and better data available in the market around individual shares and their exposure versus fund managers. And so that's probably why I've chosen funds as just the example there. But we also can do the same insight and analysis on Russian exposure through individual shares, and that exists today too. So that's also something that we've looked at within client portfolios. And we've looked at, in fact, our Russian exposure through our equity portfolios too, which are um, portfolios we manage on behalf of clients um, that are diversified equity plays for our clients. So it's something that we're absolutely focused on. Do I think there will be other instances like this, um, whether it's Russia, whether it's renewable energy, whether it's exposure to another conflict, whether it's even something like, for example, exposure to China, each client would have a view as to what was really important for them. And so I think the game for me is around transparency and making sure our clients have access to the right level of data so they can understand does that really align to their value set or not? I think, as you say, Russia, it's probably widespread condemnation. I don't think that one's a, a borderline issue, but there's many other issues I would say that are important to our clients. Um, and really that's about making sure that we get the right level of information with the right transparency to our clients in a meaningful way so they can make decisions about, you know, are they comfortable with that exposure or not, as the case may be. That element of personalization, I think, is immensely valuable for clients and it allows them to get something that is tailored, which is quite difficult to get, I think, if you're trying to construct a portfolio of managed funds yourself and so on, uh, or if you're looking at a super fund, for example, where, as I said, they're managing on behalf of hundreds of thousands of investors. Uh, I always love using my parents as an example, which I'm sure they would hate if they listened, but they don't, so it's fine. <laughs> uh, but they, you know, they've been investing in shares for a couple of decades now yeah. and they don't invest in gambling. Sure. Uh, they don't invest in... I'm going to say uranium. Uh, there's a couple of other things that are not part of their portfolio, just from an ethical perspective. My mom's uh, very strong on environmental issues and a number of other things. Totally fine with alcohol because they both enjoy wine and they feel oh, it would be sure. somewhat inappropriate to be not okay with hypocritical. Exactly, right? So that, I mean, it's just such a beautifully tailored portfolio, right? If we enjoy wine and beer, we're happy to invest in it, but we're not okay with gambling and some of the social implications of it and so on. Uh, and I think that is just a classic example of how you can tailor things. They would never invest in munitions or tobacco, I imagine. Uh, so they're the sorts of things that they, they think are right for 
for them. It's such a challenge in this space, right? Trying to define social issues, for example. How do you help advisors create a framework for their clients? They're not going to have the same level of education that you do about it and they don't spend their full day job on it all the time. How do you create a framework? Yeah, I mean, I think it's tricky to define some of those terms. Um, I suppose broadly I see social issues as things related to rights, well-being, um, interests of people, communities, um, maybe things such as labour rights, human rights, uh, consumer protection, uh, you know, health and safety. That's probably how I define um, social issues in terms of the ES and G being the S. The way that we approached it at JB Weir, which I think has some lessons in it even for clients who may not be clients of JB Weir who might be wanting to do it themselves, is I think it's about thinking about what is meaningful to you in in social issues. Um, And that might be something like labour rights might be very close to your heart and therefore you may want to look into um, shares that you're either thinking of investing in or maybe you've already invested in and looking at how does that company approach labour rights and is that something that you agree with? And I think first and foremost, I would always advise clients and I'd advise, you know, for example, my mum and dad are not clients of JB Weir, but um, obviously I talk to them about their finances quite a lot too. And I talk to them about what is it that is meaningful to you in your life? What are your value sets? And what? And I think it's important to, to write those down. As you said, you know, your parents might not want to invest in uranium or, or have uh, a stance on certain issues. I think it's important to determine how do you see the world and what is meaningful to you and what components are you really uncomfortable with? And if you are uncomfortable with them, I think there's obviously you don't invest in that area, but I'd also encourage investors to try to understand what exposures you may already have in your portfolio. And there's different ways you can do that. Obviously at JB Weir, we can, we have tools that give that insight. Um, But if you're not a client of JB Weir, I would definitely say Google is your friend um, because I think particularly in shares, I think the information and transparency gets much hazier into kind of bonds and funds. But in equities and shares, I would say there's so much free information available online, you'd be quite amazed. And so I would encourage people to do their own research. The, the, The data set is is pretty good, that's available for free, and you can get a little bit of that insight. But I think the starting point is understanding what is meaningful to you, then applying it to uh, your portfolio. It's more difficult the other way around. And I think value sets can change. Um, If I think about, you know, for example, things that I would have been comfortable personally investing in 10 years ago, my view of the world has changed in that time. And I think it's really common that people change their views and perspectives better data comes to light, Um, you know, social norms change, Um, social licences change, Uh, companies change. So I think it's something that you have to have a pretty regular viewpoint on and recheck back to your portfolio and say, hey, does this this genuinely still align with how I see the world or has something changed and maybe I need to then take some action to change what my portfolio does or doesn't have exposure to? That's a really interesting perspective that point about how people's values change because we know that companies change over time I do know people who will never invest in James Hardy never uh as a result of uh all the mesothelioma claims and the 
yeah. attempts to, uh, I guess, divest themselves of responsibility for that and so on. They will never invest in it, even though it's a dramatically different company these days. It's an ethical issue for them and they won't touch it. I'm always fascinated by some of the things that people are just find non-negotiable. Do you find that investors are sometimes conflicted? Because I find it myself, you know, I feel really strongly about some issues and then others you can see both sides of it it's hard to take a strong view I think mining's one if people are very big on environmental issues you know that we can't make a transition to renewables without some mining but you also know that that's a very emissions intensive process and how do you feel about that maybe you don't want to make money out of it but you know it's necessary if investors are conflicted how do you help them work through that yeah I mean I think you're absolutely right in that even when I think about the way I see um, the world, uh, I am, am definitely conflicted on certain topics or certain exposures because I can see both sides. Um, and I think that's true of our client base. When I see this, I think about, um, you know, it's an iterative conversation with clients. Clients' value sets absolutely change over time. Um, it's a constant evolution. And I, I would say that that evolution also needs to be reflected in the portfolio. Some clients in our portfolio, and I'm sure some of the listeners may have held um, particular shares or stocks for many, many years um, that potentially are no longer aligned with their value set. I think when I talk to clients who are in this particular position, I always uh, talk about probably two main ways of thinking about it. One is you can divest that exposure. You can get rid of that exposure. You can sell down that stock that, you know, you may not agree with or, or have changed your mind on. Um, I think that is absolutely one way. Again, as I was saying, the divestment is only one way and actually being uh, an active owner gives you a platform for advocacy, which actually can create real change. And that's through voting rights. You know, as a, as a shareholder, you tend to have voting rights. And I would always encourage clients, whoever they are, if they have a strong view to use those voting rights. I think another way is obviously to continue to hold that investment and to look at what is that company or fund doing to transition in a way that you're comfortable with. Um, and I won't name stocks um, on this podcast, but there's certain certainly, um, back to your particular point, Gemma, about mining stocks, there's be certain miners who have a very clear view as to how they want to transition their business. Now, each and every shareholder may have a different view on whether they agree with that or not, but certainly a number of miners are definitely thinking about this and making their plans transparent in the market. And so that gives shareholders a chance to say, actually, I want to hold with this stock for the long term because I actually think they're moving in the right direction and they have a clear transition plan and I think they can reach net zero in a sufficient amount of time and I'm comfortable with that. Or they may say, actually, I'm still uncomfortable with that and I still want to get rid of the exposure. I also think another way is to think about those positive or negative um, exclusions and to set tolerances for them. So, you know, back to your parents' example about they're comfortable with alcohol because um, they like to have a drink, good for them. We would have clients in our portfolios um, that might say to us, you know, I don't want a lot of alcohol exposure. Maybe I'm comfortable with up to 10%. And that's really recognising that there's a lot of companies out there and, and fund managers who may have equity exposure that have some, some things like alcohol exposure. It might be minor, um, but it's setting tolerances that you're comfortable with. So, um, And that's very common in our client base is, is recognising that you can have a zero tolerance policy, and that's also something we can implement for clients, 
Or they may say, actually, I know that there might be some exposure to things that I'm not overly comfortable with and I'm going to set a level of tolerance that I want, for example, JB Weir to monitor on my behalf because that's the level of exposure I'm comfortable with. So I'd, I'd say there's kind of three areas. You can divest and have a zero tolerance policy. You can have some tolerance or you can actually hold the investment and really advocate for change. You've probably answered this question already, but it's worth reiterating and I was going to say, do you think this is something that requires review? But clearly you've mentioned quite a few times things change and people change. How do you sort of review regularly all of those things? I think also it's worth noting companies change and companies change a lot. Uh, it's quite astonishing what was acceptable 10 years ago or 20 years ago that isn't now and how companies and boards are trying to adapt to that. How do you set up a kind of review framework for it? Yeah, so we have a pretty um, standard review framework within JB Weir for all of our client portfolios. So that would be something that would be done um, automatically as a client of JB Weir. So in, in that way, it would be following our responsible investment framework. They would be regular reviews with our um, clients about here is your portfolio and this is how it's looking and this is the exposures. Are you still comfortable with that? Do you want anything changed? Um, we do that. Um, it depends on the client. It depends on the advice. It depends on lots of different things. Um, but for um, the average listener, even, even myself, um, I, I'm a, I'm a non-JB uh, Weir client um, but, and I do my own investing. But I would think that an annual review is probably a good kind of um, rule of thumb around how often you should do that. I think that you can do it more regularly if you're if you're quite proactive. Um, but I think on an annual basis, it's worth reflecting on you know, what what is my value set, what is my portfolio looking at. Do those two align? And I've even found in my own personal investing things that I invested in many many years ago, I have changed my view on. And then I have to ask myself, you know, where do I want to stand on that? Do I want to divest it? Am I comfortable in withholding it, um, continuing to hold it, and actually I'm, I'm comfortable with their transition? Or actually is there a certain level of tolerance in my portfolio I'll have to that? And, and I think every single person listening to this will have a different perspective, but my view would be annually I think it's worth thinking about, you know, that alignment between your value set and your portfolio. So one area where you guys definitely have an advantage over the average self-directed investor is being able to look deep into a company and look past any potential greenwashing. And I really wanted to raise this because companies, big companies in particular, are getting much better at marketing their credentials. They know this is something we, we haven't talked about in this podcast, but it's worth mentioning. You know, they know that big investment managers are taking this stuff really seriously now. There's a real weight of money issue. If you want to be considered investment grade as a company, you need to have a focus on ESG. But there's a lot of effort employed in making things look greener and more socially socially responsible than they might otherwise be. Uh, the example I always think of is mining companies where you can be guaranteed the picture on their on the front of their website is a uh, is an attractive girl in a hard hat. Uh, and like 1% of their workforce is female or something. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's kind of, it's not necessarily representative of how the business operates. How can investors avoid greenwashing, avoid some of the marketing ploys that are utilised to give the appearance of a focus on these issues that might not really represent the underlying business very well? 
think it's one that we debate within um, our investment team at JB Weir all the time is that exact question is how much of it is a front versus how much of it is real. And I think it's a real challenge for the credibility of responsible investing. And I'd say it's not just something that is a challenge for us in Australia, but I, I think it is absolutely a global issue. I think the solution is either having the knowledge or skills yourself to assess the credibility of an investment's from an RI perspective, or the other alternative is to partner with a firm, you know, like JB Weir, um, that has the right level of expertise. We have a lot of tools that can help provide that transparency and insight. So we, as I was saying, we we integrate um, ESG within our due diligence processes. So this is something that, you know, already happens as part of the way that we look at investments. Um, but I would say that if you are an individual investor and you may not um, have an advice firm that you work with, there's other industry bodies that exist that might also be able to help you. So, for example, as I was saying, the Responsible Investment Association of Australasia, it's a bit of a mouthful, but RIAA, they have a Responsible Investment Certification Program. And that is another way that the industry body actually certifies investments from an RI perspective to make sure that, as you say, they're not just greenwashing or making themselves look fancier or, or uh, you know, more aligned to socially responsible investing than they actually are. So I would say that um, also Google is your friend. I will say that again um, to anyone listening, particularly if you're talking about shares. Um, shares, again, you can do a lot of uh, Googling about what a particular company looks like from an ESG perspective. And they not only do they do their own reports, and as you say, Gemma, you know, they've always got the nice pictures on their front covers and how much of that is true or not um, is, is obviously their own narrative. I would also encourage people to do some Googling on analyst research of those companies because um, pretty much every analyst on the street that analyzes shares these days would look at it from an ESG perspective as one of the ways that they think about risk within that company. So it's not super easy, I would say, to do this on your own. Um, but again, there is resources that are for free on Google and obviously firms like JB where we, we have, you know, pretty advanced tools and we do this as part of our due diligence. So, you know, we would do that on behalf of our clients. So our clients don't have to have those skills necessarily to, to be confident that what they're investing in isn't greenwashed. We haven't really talked about the impact of responsible investing on returns. I've talked about that in previous podcasts and had guests on who uh, kind of specialise in doing the research to demonstrate that simply having a focus on responsible investing can improve returns over time. One of the examples I think that would be front of mind for quite a few investors right now is if you have avoided gambling stocks, you've avoided two companies that have recently fronted a royal commission, which is always a good thing. Uh, but it does always come down to this for many investors. How much of this is going to hurt my returns? Is this really something that is uh, a nice to have if my mm -hmm. longer term goal is one, to make to make money, to build wealth, and two, to align with my values, is the second one going to counteract the first in any way? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one that we get asked a lot from our client base, you know, will I have to sacrifice returns in order to invest responsibly? It's not an easy question to answer because I don't, I think it depends on what it is that the client is investing in. But I suppose at a more fundamental level, how I would answer that question is to say, 
whether it is a company or a bond, um, which is issued by obviously a company or particularly a government might issue a bond, or it's a fund, ultimately long-term sustainable cash flows and long-term sustainable profitability is what I think most investors should be looking for in their investments. And part of managing an investment is to think about risk. And ESG, or I would say I would talk more broadly than ESG, I always want to talk about responsible investing because it's far beyond just ESG. That is a way, if a, if a company is not operating with a social licence, if it is not thinking about ESG risk within its business, then it's not really thinking about how it can be generating long-term sustainable cash flows. So I think it's not an easy question to answer. Data is mixed on this point, and we do a lot of research in this, in this particular area. You know, do you sacrifice returns? I think more and more the data set is showing that, no, you don't sacrifice returns. You can. There is different ways to invest responsibly where you may choose to sacrifice returns, for example, philanthropy or certain impact investments that may perform below market. But in general, I would say most ways of of investing responsibly does actually improve your risk-adjusted returns over the long term. And I think that key point about over the long term is something that clients need to to really understand is there's tactical investing and there's long-term investing. And what we do at JB Weir in particular is we think about clients' wealth over the long term. There may be some listeners of your podcast that are thinking more tactically and, and I completely respect that. But I do think responsible investing over the long term is a thematic that is here to stay. And no, I don't think it necessarily sacrifices returns. In fact, I think the data is continuing to show that and more clearly show that you actually are going to generate better returns over the long term by thinking about investing responsibly and by thinking about ESG risk that may impact the way a company or a fund performs in terms of their long term cash flows. I think also it's worth noting that companies are thinking about it, even if you're not. Uh, no one's going to bother investing in greenwashing if they don't think it's going to help them. <laughs> it's just, it's still an expensive, it's an expensive exercise, right? Any kind of marketing is expensive, and uh, and you're doing it for a reason, right? You're doing it because you want to tell the market clearly that you're a company worth investing in over the long run, uh, and so that. That work is happening inside a lot of companies, which should give people some comfort, but you do need to do your own work, which brings me to the critical question. This is a specialised field. Investors might feel like they need some help. Where can people go to find out more about JB Weir and how you guys help clients? Sure. Um, We have a fantastic new website. I would say that our colleagues in marketing have just uh, launched and built um, and that website is jbweir.com.au. So that's jbweir.com.au. Um, and on there, there's a page which is completely dedicated to responsible investing. And there's a short video, I think it's um, all of three minutes, um, which is a video that talks about how we approach responsible investing and our frameworks. That's about those four pillars, and that's about ESG, um, influence around advocacy, stewardship and engagement, impact investing and how we look at that, and individualising client portfolios, which is around that negative and positive screening. So even as a client um, uh, of JB Weir, or even if you're a listener that isn't a client of JB Weir, that can at least give you a starting point because that's based on global best practice. It's also aligned to PRI, um, which is the kind of leading body in this area. So it's a way of your listeners thinking about 
what areas it might of responsible investing might apply to them and to think about it further. We also have a full RI policy available on our website um, and we have a shorter brochure for those that don't want to read the full policy. So again, there are two free tools that are available on our website um, for any client or prospective client or even a listener who um, to understand a little bit more about how can I approach responsible investing and what does um, hopefully best practice look like in terms of responsible investing? So I'd really encourage anyone to visit our website um, and to download those tools. Gillian Gordon from JB Weir. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Gemma. Thank you so much for listening. Also, as always, we love hearing from you. We receive fantastic feedback from you guys. We love getting your questions. This is one that keeps coming up, actually. Uh, so please just email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. I'm Gemma Dale. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Your Wealth with Gemma Dale. To stay up to date, please subscribe to this podcast series or email us at yourwealth@nab.com.au. Please note that any advice provided in this podcast has been prepared without taking into account your objectives, financial circumstances or needs. Before acting, you should consider the appropriateness of the information. To find out more, please visit nab.com.au.